Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Yeah, it's good to be with you all this morning, and let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity again to come and study. We thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for Jesus and what he has accomplished for us that we'll be studying today. And we ask that your spirit will enlighten our minds, help us to grasp the deep significance of what Christ has accomplished for us, that we can uh, grow in your grace and be uh, effective in your cause. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Today we are doing our lesson number six in the uh, quarterly or the Bible study guide, which is on death, dying, and the future hope. And the title this week is He Died for Us. He Died for Us. And we're going to jump right into Tuesday's lesson. And Tuesday's lesson asks us to read John 19, 1 through 30. We're not going to read all 30 verses. This is the description of Jesus' trial before Pilate, the Jewish leaders calling for Jesus' death, uh, how they said they had no king but Caesar, and and then ultimately Jesus' crucifixion. And we're going to read uh, just uh, three verses, 28, 29, and 30. And this is from the NIV. It says, Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So the question, what was finished? What was finished? That's what we're going to talk about today. What was accomplished at the cross? And before we explore that question, what was finished, what Jesus accomplished, I want to set out from the, 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 the beginning of this conversation some foundational truths that we believe about the mission, purpose, and the accomplishments of Jesus. And nothing we say in our conversation will contradict these foundational truths. One, after Adam sinned, no human being could be saved without the sinless life, sacrificial death, and resurrection of Jesus as our Savior. Two, the death of Jesus was a requirement for the salvation of human beings from sin. Three, Jesus died as our substitute. We believe in substitutionary atonement. In other words, Jesus took the place of sinful human beings in order to address and overcome the sin problem for us so that human beings can be saved from sin because we couldn't overcome the problem. There is nothing in any that any human being can do to add to or improve upon what Christ has done for us. We as individuals experience individual salvation by God's grace as manifested in the accomplishments of Jesus Christ when we partake of those accomplishments through faith, also known as trust. And we experience the victory of Christ in our lives individually when through that faith we open our hearts to God and the Holy Spirit takes the victory of Christ transforms our hearts, changes our minds, writes the law on our hearts and minds. This is known as being reborn, what Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. With all of that being said, okay, hopefully I've made those baseline foundational points clear. Don't get confused as we unpack this now, as we reject certain explanations of why Christ had to die, our rejections of certain explanations in no way undermines the points that we've just said. We will not contradict those. 
So, what was the finished work? It is finished. When you think of that, does your brain automatically start thinking, okay, uh, do we have that type of description anywhere? Do we have some, some description in Scripture? Maybe from Jesus himself, where he described elsewhere that he finished the work that God gave him to do. Well, if you look in John 17, right before these events of the crucifixion weekend, his final prayer is recorded in Scripture. In John 17, let's read verses 1 through 6. This is out of the Good News translation. So after Jesus finished saying this, he looked up to, the, to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Give glory to your Son so that the Son may give glory to you. For you gave him authority over all humanity so that he might give eternal life to all those you gave him. And eternal life means knowing you, the only true God, and knowing Jesus Christ whom you, who you sent. I have shown you glory on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. Father, give me glory in your presence now, the same glory I had before the world was made. I have made you known to those you gave me out of the world. I have finished the work you have given me to do. What have I done? I have made you known. Was this finished work that Jesus described here of making the Father known the same work that he was saying on the cross it is finished? Or are these two different accomplishments not related? Or was it the same? You all think it was the same? You think it was different works? Same. Same. Same work. Okay, good. So, was Jesus' finished work for the Father gave him to? Would you say that his finished work was specifically designed to resolve the sin problem? Could we say that his sinless life? sacrificial death, revelation of the Father, all these elements were intended to address and overcome and resolve the sin problem. Yes. Yes? yes. Okay. Then would our understanding and explanation of the sin problem influence what, why we think Jesus had to die? If, the, if, if we believe his death was to address the sin problem, would our understanding of the problem influence how we interpret why he had to die? Yes. Yes. So then, what was the problem that sin caused that the plan of salvation fixes? So I ask, the, I ask these questions because it helps differentiate some of the theologies and atonement models out there. When Adam sinned in Eden, did God get changed? No. 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 Did God's law get changed? No. no. Did the condition of Adam and Eve get changed? Yes. yes. So... Is there a problem with God or God's law that, that the plan of salvation needs to fix? No. 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 Is there a problem with humanity that needs fixing? Yes. yes. So if we understand that basic point, however we explain the mission of Christ, where will the impact have to be? Will it have to be on God? Will it have to be on God's law? Or will it have to be in the human species to actually fix the problem? In the human species. It'll have to be in the human species. Understand, that truth alone, when you rest on that truth, it immediately eliminates many of the atonement models out there. Because many of the atonement models actually have the impact of what Christ has done being applied to the Father or applied to the law in some way. 
rather than the impact being applied, as Jesus himself said, when he used the metaphorical symbols of his flesh and blood, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. He was telling us that that he applies what he's going to achieve into the human being, not to his father. So when we think this through about these finished work, finished work of revealing the Father. Uh, We're trying to identify what is the sin problem. So man got changed in some way when Adam and Eve sinned. What was it that Satan did that actually caused Adam and Eve to sin? What did he do? He lied, particularly about God. And you remember the metaphor, you're in a loving marriage and somebody lies to you about your spouse and tells you a lie that your spouse is having an affair, but it's not true. And if you believe the lie, does something inside of you change? Notice, lies believe break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. I don't trust you. I think you're cheating on me. Even though you're not, because I believe you do, I'm now afraid that you're going to hurt me and take advantage. So I don't trust you. I'm going to watch out for myself. So lies believe break the circle of love and trust result in fear and selfishness, the survival drives, which result in acts of sin, acting selfishly. And this is a terminal condition. It damages hearts, minds, characters, relationships. We are dead in trespass and sin. This is the condition we've inherited from Adam. So if sin began in Eden with lies about God, what do you think the healing solution starts with? The truth about God. The truth about God. So Jesus said, you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Father, I've finished the work you've given me to do. I've made you known. Making you known destroys the lies and wins back to trust. So lies believe break the circle of love and trust. Truth about God believe destroys the lies and wins us back to trust. In that trust or faith, we open our hearts And the Holy Spirit is poured in. It says in Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. And the fear base and perfect love casts out fear. And so instead of being driven by fear and selfishness, we now have new motives of love and trust. And the new motives of love and trust result in, instead of acts of sin, we now live acts of righteousness, acts of service, acts of beneficence. And the acts of righteousness and loving service and and living out God's principles help us grow and mature in godly grace and spread the kingdom of God. We become lights in the world. So notice, though, again, problem starts with lies about God. Healing solution starts with truth about God. So Jesus finished the work the Father gave him to do. He made the truth about God known. But is revealing the truth to destroy the lies that win us to trust the total and complete and only purpose of Christ's mission on earth. No. No. See, we we needed more. We we, we could not be saved as long as we still believed lies about God. We had to be one to trust. But we actually needed something more. And is God's law involved in the sin problem in some way and the solution for it? Yes? No? Is God's law involved? Yes. And so it leads to the question, when you think about what what the sin problem is and God's solution for it, what Christ accomplished for us, what law lens do you look at that through? If we view God's law functioning like human law, which is a system of made-up rules, imposed rules that require judicial oversight, 
and infliction of external punishments, we call those just penalties, uh, for the guilty, uh, in order that that the sin might be held, the sin and sinner may be held accountable, and the law and the integrity of the law maintained. Then we explain the purpose of the cross in legal terms, and we see God as a rule enforcer, the one being in the universe who is ultimately the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death as punishment for sin. This is what the penal legal human law model does. It ultimately corrupts the way we see God. That that pain, suffering, and death come out from him as punishment from sin, rather than what the Bible teaches, that the wages of sin is death. So the legal view, this imposed human law view, if we accept that premise, it leads good-hearted people to draw a host of wrong conclusions because the underlying belief about the law that they never even questioned, they never even were really formally taught it the way I'm pulling it out and making it very clear for you to see, it's just an assumed truth that everyone operates on. This is the law, and the law requires accountability, and when you break the law, you have to be punished. It's never actually stated out loud in any circles that I've seen that God's law works like human law. We've pulled it out for you to see that. But this assumed idea, this assumed to be true lie corrupts everything else about the plan of salvation and the sin problem. They will say that Jesus came to be tempted like us and overcome the temptation so that he could be a sinless substitute upon whom God would inflict our punishment in order to meet the demands of his holy law. It is then claimed that if we sinners accept the legal payment, that God will be able to declare us to be righteous even though we are still unrighteous, and that God will not be legally required to kill us anymore because our payment has been made by an innocent substitute who's paid the Father our legal sin debt. Further, it is taught that if we claim the blood payment of Jesus, then God will apply that blood to our heavenly records, and it erases the historical records of our sins so that no record of our sinful deeds will remain for any saved or sinless being to ever know about when we get to heaven. But this legal application of inflicted punishment and payment of blood of a blood debt to the ruling God is only able to be applied if the innocent party suffers for every single sin committed by every single human through all time. And therefore, all individual acts of sin were placed upon Jesus at the cross, and God used his power to inflict appropriate torment and torture upon his son to make him pay for all those sins. This is what's taught in the penal view. Now, they won't quite say it this way. They'll try to hide the realities of what they're saying in theological terminologies, but this is actually what they mean. Do you find this explanation reasonable? I find it ugly. Does it win you to trust a God who would artificially use power to inflict punishment upon an innocent person so that the guilty person could go free. Would that does that does that instill confidence in you? Would you like to live in a in a place that did that? Would you like to live in a country where innocent people are purposely and knowingly punished for the crimes of the guilty so the guilty could go free? How about if it's a voluntary innocent person, like a mother who volunteers to be punished for the crimes of her adult son or daughter 
would you uh, want to, if we did that, if we said yes, if you have a loving relative who is willing to be punished for your crime in our society, we'll allow them to be punished in your place. If, if we did that, punish the innocent for the guilty, would we be more like Jesus? No. 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 But that's what it's taught. That's how God does it. And aren't we supposed to be like him? So where does this unjust penal legal explanation come from? It comes from the premise that God's law works like human law. And if that premise were true, then you have to enforce it with, with inflicted punishments. The problem is that premise is not true. God's law does not work like human law. And this is why Satan has infected Christianity with this idea that God's law works like human law, because he knows as long as we hold that view about God's law, then the concepts that we teach about God are corrupted, and we make God out to look like Satan in character, an unforgiving, severe, arbitrary source of pain and suffering. And that undermines genuine trust in God as long as we teach these distortions about him. Such teachings of this penal legal, again, undermine trust in God while they follow this now. This is another reason why the penal legal persists around. While they, they undermine our faith or trust in God, while they increase our faith in the various rituals and religious um, behaviors and doctrines and superstitious teachings that are designed to hide us and protect us from God. So we have faith in a blood payment. We have faith in a legal payment. We have faith in, in, the, in the way we, we, uh, we behave. And this ultimately leads simultaneously to increasing power in the human religious leaders and organizations. If you look at organizations that teach a penal legal model, those who run those organizations are empowered by that way of teaching. See, if you pay your tithes and offerings to the right organization, your sins will no longer remain on the books. <laughs> if, you make, uh, if you make sure that you remain in good standing of that organization you remain in a saving state. In other words, you don't want to be excommunicated or disfellowshipped from the organization. That would not be good for your salvation. So organizational uh, uh, membership and loyalty gives us security rather than a trust relationship with Jesus. Or make sure you participate in the right rituals that are applied in the right way with the right verbiage used at the right time, and as long as you do, you have your sins accounted for. But if you don't take the right ritual in the right way by the right authorized person who's blessed the, blessed the instruments in the right way, then your sins are not accounted for. Who's actually being empowered by these types of superstitious teachings? It's the system. This is why the penal legal model is so valued by so many people that, that are in religious uh, authority. That's the Jews in Christ Day certainly valued this. And you can see this very method being used to control the, the, the masses of people through intimidation and so forth. But this is all contrary to Scripture, exactly opposite of the truth, and it's the result of accepting this, this idea that God's law functions like human law. But if we return to design law, that God is creator, his laws are the laws upon which he built reality to operate, and life and health only exist in harmony with them, then we return to what scripture teaches that
the wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. The one who sows to the carnal nature from that nature reaps destruction. In other words, we realize God is the source of life. And death comes from breaking our connection with the source of life. It does not come out from God. And thus we are dead in our trespass and sins. We have a terminal condition, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, as David wrote in Psalms 51.5. And this condition, this symptom, this, this condition we're born in has symptoms, which we call sins. And without Jesus, the promised Messiah of Genesis 3.15, without Jesus coming, every single human being would die of this condition. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now let's keep reading past the famous 3.16 to, to a couple more verses. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. From where does condemnation for sin come? It doesn't come from God. It doesn't come from Jesus. Jesus came into the world to save, not to condemn the world. Only those who embrace the light are saved. Those who don't embrace the light stand condemned already. What does that mean? Why are they condemned? Because they're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Born with a terminal sin condition that without the light, the truth, to dispel the lies and win us to trust, without that, results in ruin and death. This is a description of design law, of reality. Now think this through with me. If a patient goes to the doctor and the doctor diagnoses them with a terminal cancer condition, do they go home and tell their family, well, the doctor has condemned me to death? Is that what they say? No. The doctor has condemned me to death. And does the family respond by, well, well, since if the doctors condemn you to death, well, if we could only get the doctor to be to be less judgmental, maybe we could pay the doctor a fee or a proper payment. And maybe if he gets the proper payment, the doctor will declare you to be cancer free, even though you're not. How would that work? Not at all. <laughs> but that's what the penal legal model teaches. God will declare you to be righteous, even though you're not, if he gets the proper payment. Because the problem is God condemning. No, it's not God. We just read in John 3, Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. Those who don't accept him stand condemned already. Why? Because their condition is the sin condition, which is a terminal condition. And think about this. If there were doctors and patients who operated the way I just described, doctors diagnosing terminal disease, but then taking payments from their patients in order to declare them non-terminal while they still remained terminal, what would the outcome actually be? What would the result be? Death. 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 Death.
they would still get sick. They would still begin to, to wither away. They would still have all kinds of symptoms, and they would still die. The legal declaration of cancer-free state while you still are cancer, eaten up with cancer, has no effect. Likewise, declaring legally somebody is righteous while they remain unrighteous does not result in any Christ-like transformation or saving experience for the person. And this is why in Christianity, child abuse rates are no different in Christian homes than non-Christian homes. Spouse abuse rates are no different. Pornography use is no different. Addiction rates are no different. And this is what Paul said at the end of time. They would have a form of godliness, but no power thereof. They have a penal legal religion that looks godly as, as they carry out their religious rituals, but this system is a system designed to cheat them out of true transformation. After all, if you believed a doctor's declaration when he declared you to be healthy, even though you were still eaten up with cancer, if you believed you weren't, you wouldn't seek further treatment. And so this, this religion of penal legal declaration has kept Christians from experiencing the true healing and transformation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit indwells us and creates in us a new heart and a right spirit. And understand this plan of, to save sinners from sin is a joint plan of the Godhead. God so loved the world, he sent his son. God was in the son reconciling the world to himself. There is not one member of the Godhead working for our salvation, while another member of the Godhead is working to punish sin. That is not what's happening. And that's what the penal legal model also teaches. The Father is the legal uh, authoritarian enforcer, and Jesus is the merciful, gracious, sacrificing deity who gives his blood and goes to heaven to offer it to the Father, to, to, to assuage and propitiate the Father's wrath so the Father won't lash out against us. This is all pagan theology that's infected Christian thought based on the root lie that God's law works like human law. Jesus took the terminal sin condition upon himself, but rather than over be, being overcome by that terminal condition, the scripture teaches that, quote, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Jesus was not destroyed by sin, nor by the power of death. Jesus destroyed both sin and the power of death through his victorious life and sacrificial death at the cross. In the humanity of Jesus, he experienced the full weight of what sin causes. He experienced the temptations, the fears, the anxieties, the agony, the emotional turmoil. It says in Hebrews 4 that he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. Do you believe that's true? Amen. And notice how we're tempted. Are you tempted only from external deceivers? No. Or do you get tempted by your own feelings? James chapter 1 says, no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. And each, each one of us are tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. Jesus was tempted in every way just like we are. So did the humanity that Jesus took upon himself through his mother Mary, did that humanity tempt him? Do you see evidence of emotional temptation coming from his own humanity? 
In Gethsemane, do we see evidence that Jesus experienced human emotional anguish and turmoil that tempted him not to go through the cross? Yes, that was not external temptation, like in the desert when the Satan was trying to trick him. That was internal emotional temptation that he was facing, the anguish of fear and agony that we all suffer under. And he was facing that temptation. And every time the temptation came, Jesus overcame it with faith and love, faith and trust in his Father and love for his Father and love for you and me. Love overcame the temptation to act in self-interest. Thus, in Jesus, in his humanity, in his human nature, because it says in James 1 that God cannot be tempted by evil. Jesus did not overcome by his, in his divine self. He overcame as the second Adam in his human self, using his human abilities, his human brain, his human power of decision. And by exercising his human abilities, he destroyed death, and the principle that causes death that he inherited from his mother Mary, and he solidified the life-causing principle that he inherited from his Father, the Holy Spirit, and thus he cleansed humanity from the death-causing principle and rose again on the third day in a new humanity that he achieved and developed as our substitute Savior. This is what it says in Hebrews 5, 9. So, quote, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Many misread this. They go, well, wasn't he always perfect? No, Jesus was always sinless. But Bible perfection is actually not about sinlessness. Bible perfection is about maturity of character. Character cannot be created. It must be developed by the choices of the intelligent being. Jesus, as a human, as our substitute Savior, as the second Adam, was tempted in every way just like we are, yet instead of giving in to temptation like we've all done, he chose with his human abilities to say no to every temptation and developed a perfect, sinless, mature human character. And he destroyed or purged from his humanity the infection of fear and selfishness inherited through his mother. And thus he becomes the source of salvation, the new head of humanity, opening a new way. And we can partake of what Christ has achieved through faith. When we have faith or trust, we open the heart. And the Holy Spirit takes the victory of Christ. And as Paul wrote, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get new heart and right spirit. We have circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. We have the law written upon the heart and mind. We're reborn. We have the heart of stone taken away and a heart of flesh put in. It's a regenerating supernatural process where the Holy Spirit takes the victory of Christ and imparts it to us as we have faith and trust in him. Any questions about any of that so far? Does that make sense? Yes. Notice what we're describing here. This is objective reality. It's achievement. It's not mysticism. It's not mythical. It's not superstitious. Life only exists in harmony with God and the laws he built life to operate upon. Sorry. Break the laws he built life to operate upon and pain, suffering, and death occur. Somebody's got a question? Yeah, so you're saying that Jesus experienced fear? Yes. Yes, he did. I guess I've never... Pardon? I said thank you, because I guess I've always looked at fear as a weakness. 
and never thought about Christ experiencing it, which makes me feel... Well, in Gethsemane, you see that. He, he, he experienced anguish so much that he, he had this... Ang- so fear, when you say fear, it wasn't a selfish fear that we have. It was the, it was the, the, uh, the emotion of anxiety and distress related to his experience that he was going through. And it was so great that he sweat blood. That's how distressing it was. Now, so in this view, this healing view, this design law view, this overcoming view, he he reveals truth about God, and he also develops a perfect human character, an achievement, destroying the infection of fear and selfishness from the humanity he took upon himself. Every act of sin in this view by every single human being through all time was not placed on Jesus and punished by his father. Instead, Jesus took upon, the, took upon himself the condition and was tempted in a similar or like way that each one of us suffer temptation. And he overcame those temptations unlike all of us. Questions? So was the problem that sin caused restricted to human beings? No. No. Was there a problem that sin uh, with sin that existed before Adam and Eve sin? Yes. In God's universe. So when Lucifer and a third of the angels sinned in heaven, did their rebellion, same questions I asked about Adam and Eve a moment ago, let's ask the same ones. When Adam when Lucifer and a third of the angels rebelled and sinned in heaven, did their rebellion change God? No. 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 Did their rebellion change God's law? No. Did did something happen that they changed? Yes. Yes. And did God need to do something to address the sin problem that Lucifer started? Yes. Yeah. Was Christ's death necessary after the fall of Adam and Eve to not only address the human sin problem, but by addressing the human sin problem, did Christ's actions also provide something necessary for the angels who remained loyal in heaven, that they needed it. Well, look at Colossians 1, 18 through 20. And this is what Colossians 1, 18 through 20 says. Speaking of Christ, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Something bigger than just human beings was going on. God had a sin problem that extended beyond planet earth and human beings. What was it that the loyal angels needed, even though they were not sinners, they had not rebelled, but somehow they still needed the cross? What was it they needed, and how was the cross a benefit to them? The truth not to believe Lucifer's lies. So they were being tempted to believe Lucifer's lies. They remained loyal, but, but maybe they didn't have all their questions answered. So Jesus says in John 12, 31 to 32, it says, now is the time for judgment on this world. 
now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, that's how it reads in your Bible. Essentially, every translation has the word men. Will draw all men into myself. But in the Greek, there, that word's not there. That's supplied by the translators. Jesus actually said, I will draw all to myself. And that's because Jesus understood that he had a larger mission than just humanity, that the angelic host were watching. And you have this larger view throughout all scripture. Revelation chapter 12, there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Uh, the Genesis account, when the serpent tempted, the first uh, uh, chapter of the book of Job, where you have the heavenly council coming, Zechariah, where Satan is tempted. We have all through this scripture, there's something larger going on. Yes, question in the back. Are you suggesting then that Jesus and God needed Adam to sin in order to sin? No, no, I was very careful to frame my statement as once Adam and Eve sinned, was the death of Christ needed to do more than save Adam and Eve. So once Adam and Eve sinned, then these dual accomplishments. But it was not, in fact, it was against God's plan for Adam and Eve's sin. And my personal view is that part of God's solution to the allegations of Satan in heaven was the creation of this planet and creating a new species that were given godlike abilities of procreation and dominion of uh, of dominion over lower life forms, and that this planet was created as a microcosm in which we were to act the role of the Godhead as we come into unity of love and procreate. Godhead comes into unity of love and creates, and we and Adam and Eve were to govern this planet under the same methods and principles that God governs His universe. And this, this, um, as Paul says in Romans, uh, excuse me, in First Corinthians four nine, that we are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. That uh, that this this world was created as a theater, a lesson book to teach these things. So no, I think the uh, the revelations of how God does things in object lesson form, lived out by a loyal and faithful Adam and Eve, would have answered the allegations uh, that Lucifer bore in heaven, because they would have seen there was no arbitrary um, list of rules and coercive enforcement and so forth, and how Adam and Eve governed the planet in a sinless and perfect world. So no, I don't think it was necessary them to sin. But once they sinned, the plan of salvation was not for us only. It was for securing the entire universe. Sin had spread beyond the angelic host to the human host, and God had to act in a way to stop its spread uh, through further intelligences in the, in the universe. I saw another hand. Yes. Tim, there's an interesting paragraph in Great Controversy in the chapter, The Origin of Evil, and it talks about how had Lucifer confessed before the other angels had uh, he revealed the truth that you know he was wrong and God was right that he would have been restored right back to his original place in heaven <clears throat> and it doesn't speak that there's any need for uh, this a sacrifice or anything so the context of heaven seems in that there seems to uh, address the need for in other words like the uh, Jesus didn't have to die had it all been resolved in heaven but on earth the blood, the blood was necessary for the revelation and the exposure. Of so, so the author you're describing, I think, says that again and again, Lucifer was offered pardon on the condition of repentance and submission. Um, that, that's what she says. 
uh, on the condition of repentance and submission. No blood payments were needed. But she says that uh, Lucifer sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as to no other created being, was given a revelation of the character of God. Um, he, in, in the light of this glory, he, uh, he chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more that God could do for him. But man was deceived by Satan's sophistry. The height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. There is hope for him in the um, revelation of the character of God. And so I think that's the paragraph you were referencing. And, and the point uh, of the paragraph is that uh, in, in heaven, the, the, the breach of trust happened without Lucifer himself being deceived by some other being, number one. Number two, all of the angels in heaven had their own personal, historical life experiences with God themselves. Human beings, on the other hand, only Adam and Eve had face-to-face -face relation. We don't know how long that was, but the implications of Scripture, it was a very short time that they were alive before they, they were tricked into uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, believing the lies and rebelling. And so the children of Adam and Eve, however, none of us really have had a historical personal experience of, of God in a sinless environment to see how he operates in a sinless uh, world. And so we, we uh, did not know the height and the depth and the methods and the character of God. So there's hope for us and a revelation of his character. And then back to the point of how we start our lesson today, that he finished the work he came to do. He had made, a, he had made God known to, to men to dispel the lies and win us back to trust. So I would agree with you. Angels in heaven did not need a blood payment to pay for sin. They also didn't need an angel to develop an, a sinless angelic character for them. They all had their own sinless characters to start with. Okay? We did not start from a sinless position, though. We started born in sin, conceived in iniquity since Adam's fall. Someone needed to fix and set that right for us and win us back to trust simultaneously. And so then back to the question, what did the angels need? They didn't need a new angelic nature. Their natures are still sinless. But they needed to be protected from believing lies that would corrupt their nature. That's what they needed. And so this is back to what Jesus was saying. Um, let's go back to this uh, quote. Now's, now's the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, if I am lifted up, will draw all unto myself. Jesus' crucifixion, according to Jesus, would pronounce judgment on the world and the prince of this world. Who's the prince of this world? Satan. Satan is the prince of this world. And so at the cross, Satan is going to be judged and driven out. Oh, what kind of judgment is this? Is this a, was Jesus' crucifixion a courtroom scene? Do we have a prosecutor? Do we have evidence? Being, no, this is not a judicial judgment. This was the judgment that Paul describes in Romans 3, verse 4. And this is what it reads. Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged, speaking about God. Lucifer began his war by telling lies about God in heaven, deceived a third of the angels, and God was believed to, uh, God was viewed in a false light. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, there will be judgment on this world and the prince of this world will be driven out. Why? Because he will reveal the truth about who the Father is, destroy the lies about God that Satan has told, and he will be driven out of the affections 
and loyalties of any friends he might still have in heaven. He would be driven out of the shadows of deception, out into the open where he will be seen for who he is, the father of lies and the murderer from the beginning. And this is what happened. He was judged by all the intelligences in heaven in pursuing the death of the Son of God as to be untrustworthy, a liar, a fraud, and a murderer, and all sympathy was lost for him, and he was driven out. And no longer could he then uh, tempt the angels. His work was restricted to earth by reality because no intelligence in the universe would listen to his lies anymore. And after the cross, you don't see any inspired record of him going into heaven like you see in the first chapter of the book of Job anymore and messing with the angels. They have shut him out of their loyalties. They were sealed and settled. And that's what the cross did for the angels. And this is what Paul describes that was accomplished there. The righteousness of God was revealed. So in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26, this is what what we read. But now a righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. And he goes on to say, by the way, the word righteousness and justice are the same in the Greek. He goes on to say that, um, if, uh, let's see, um, freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, that word propitiation in this particular translation comes from the Greek hilasterion, which simply means the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. To, but here's why, here's why uh, Paul says that Christ was shown publicly dying. Here's why. To demonstrate God's righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. God's actions in sending his son were to demonstrate that he, in fact, is righteous and that he uh, is trustworthy and that the lies of Satan are to be rejected. And we're going to move on because our time is really flying by. Any questions about any of this? Let's go to Wednesday. Hand somewhere. All right, Wednesday's lesson. Second paragraph, Wednesday's lesson says the following. Tell me what you think of this. Put your thinking caps on. But animal sacrifices could not, take, could not take away sin by themselves. They provided only conditional forgiveness dependent on the effectiveness of Christ's future sacrifice on the cross. End quote. What do you think about that? Any part of that true? No. No. No, none of that's true. Think this through with me. Let's look at the first sentence. But animal sacrifices could not take away sin by themselves. Does that mean animal sacrifices could take away sins if they were coupled or joined with something else? No. That's the implication, isn't it? Yeah. Well, maybe animal sacrifices could take away sins if it was coupled with faith in a future sacrifice? No. Animal sacrifices could never take away sin. Period. Full stop. Animal sacrifices were never able to remove sin save from sin, provide impact upon the sin condition, or remedy sin. Animal sacrifices could never do that. They were only and ever designed to teach, to educate, to impact the mind of the sinner in ways that would lead the sinner to salvation in Jesus Christ. This is true through all human history from Adam's fall and the first sacrifice in Eden right after their fall all the way up until the last animal sacrifice. 
they were only and ever teaching tools. In fact, during Old Testament times, people did not have to participate in the animal sacrificial service in order to experience salvation, but they did have to experience what the Old Testament sacrificial system was teaching. That is, they had to experience reconciliation with God through the efficacy of Jesus Christ. They had to experience that. But they didn't have to offer animals. Is there any evidence of that? Can you think of any people recorded in Scripture that Scripture indicates experienced salvation but never participated in animal sacrifices? Rahab. Naaman. Naaman, Nebuchadnezzar were two that came to my mind. But also... At least during the 70 years, Daniel and his friends in Babylon, there's no indication that they were participating in any of that stuff because the temple was destroyed. And they were still being saved. So the first sentence that we just read at best is very poorly constructed, but I think it likely reveals something more. I think it reveals a fundamental misunderstanding of the sin problem and God's solution for it which is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of God's law being imposed. And we get that if you look at the next sentence that coupled right with it. Talking about the animal sacrifices. They provided only conditional forgiveness dependent on the effectiveness of Christ's future sacrifice of the cross. What? Wait a minute. An animal sacrifice provides conditional forgiveness? Well, think this through. Is the problem that sin caused, we asked this at the very beginning, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, did God get changed? No. God's law get changed? No. So is the problem with the sin problem is that we need to get God to forgive. The problem is God is unforgiving. And something needs to be offered him so that he'll be forgiving. And we need to get his forgiveness. If we can't get his forgiveness, then, then we've got a problem. Is the obstacle to the salvation of sinners... God's attitude, no. his unforgiveness. No. Uh, Epi, you got your hand up, I see. I was trying to see why Job offered all these sacrifices every day for his children. Uh, did he not have a clear understanding or what? Do you believe the sacrifices Job offered provided cleansing from sin? No. No. His belief... If, if, I can tell you that you can look at the Hebrews text. The Hebrews uh, texts are quite clear that animal sacrifices do not remove sin. That's what it tells us in the book of Hebrews. But if we want to consider that, if animal sacrifices could save people from sin, was there any necessity for Jesus to die? No. No. So, so whatever Job is doing, it actually doesn't resolve the sin problem. I mean, I was wondering if he did not understand the right theology. Well, clearly he, he didn't. Have, clearly the whole book of Job is about Job not understanding. That's what the whole book is about. He trusted God. He, I trust him. I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand the process. I, I, but, I, but here's what I know. I know God is good. I know God is trustworthy. And I'm going to trust him. Even if God were to kill me, yet will I trust him. Okay. So Job is an example of somebody who trusts, even though they don't understand. They understood enough; of, He understood enough about God to know that God was trustworthy. 
But I don't think he had a clear understanding of the sin problem, the plan of salvation, the role of animal sacrifices, and the logic lessons there to teach. I, I don't believe he had a clear understanding of those things. He knew his friends were wrong. He knew that he didn't deserve in some penal legal way what was happening to him. He didn't cause this. He knew that. He didn't believe God was necessarily the cause of doing it to him, and he knew if he had a conversation with God, God would answer his questions. But clearly the book of Job is about a person who did not understand. He certainly, That's what the book of Job is about. He certainly didn't understand the great controversy perspective. I mean, no, he, he didn't. No. No. He had no idea so, that he was being used, that God had held him up in his, as an example and Satan was attacking him. So, so back to this question about forgiveness. Is the obstacle to any human salvation God's unforgiving attitude and something needs to be done, the proper payment, the proper influence, the pleading of a, of a blood sacrifice? Something needs to be done to get God to forgive us. No. 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 Well, let me ask you this. Is Jesus fully God? Yes. yes. Did Jesus have authority on earth to forgive sins according to his own testimony and actions? Yes. 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 Did Jesus forgive those who crucified him? Yes. 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 Is Jesus fully God? Yes. yes. <laughs> so here we have God, the Son, who has authority to forgive sins, forgiving his crucifiers. Were they now saved? No. 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 But they're forgiven. You see, this blows a hole in the entire penal legal substitutionary idea that something has to be done to God to get his forgiveness. Forgiveness was automatically extended from the moment of sin. Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. In fact, I would suggest to you, notice from the foundation of the world. Does it say Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from the moment of Adam's sin? <laughs> it doesn't know. Get your mind around this. This is a distinction. God, in his foreknowledge, knew what was going to happen. He was not required, God was not required to create planet Earth and human beings on it. There would be no evil in God's heart to not create this unique order of creation. And God knew that when he did and gave Adam and Eve true liberty and freedom of conscience in the context of the war, he foreknew that they would be tricked. And he made the decision to create this world anyway, knowing that he would go through the cross to save us. Wow. He was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He was already committed. And I even go farther, in my understanding, because God lives outside time, that this is how um, Elijah, and e e Elijah and Enoch and Moses were saved. They were saved because Christ came and succeeded. Had, had Christ not succeeded, Elijah, Enoch, and Moses would have never been taken to heaven in the first place. They were only taken to heaven through the successes of Christ. And Christ left his infinite existence that exists outside of time and was born in Bethlehem and for 33 years uh, on earth lived in what we call linear existence. One moment follows the next moment. And he, as a human being, overcame and achieved the remedy that we're talking about today for sin. And after he achieved it, his father, who continues to live outside of time, 
can apply that anywhere the Father exists in time, which is previous to our existence, what we call back in time. But for God, all points in time are equal, past, present, and future. So the, the, fact, that Christ, the fact that Elijah and, and, uh, and Moses and, uh, and Enoch were taken to heaven is proof positive that, that Christ was going to succeed in our timeline. It was really great, kind of cool, cool stuff. Which, uh, which, if anybody asks you the question, well, if Christ wouldn't have succeeded, would Enoch and Elijah had to come down here and die for their sin? You heard that question? Yes. <laughs> That's a backwards question. The fact that they are in heaven was proof that he succeeded already in God's reality. He just hadn't succeeded in our linear existence yet, but it was going to happen, and it was going to be, it's going to be successful. So the issue in the statement was about the animals give conditional forgiveness. No, they don't. The forgiveness was already extended. But God's forgiveness does not restore trust, does not reveal the truth, doesn't finish the work that Jesus came to, to finish to reveal the truth about his father, to destroy the lies and win us to trust, doesn't develop as a human being a perfect, sinless human character, doesn't destroy from humanity the carnal nature with its selfish and fear-ridden drives. All of that still had to be accomplished, but God's forgiveness was already extended, but that forgiveness doesn't provide the solution to our condition and restore us to eternal life. Jesus Christ is the solution that restores us to eternal life. So we're going to jump for a couple more points, and we're going to close out today's lesson. Uh, let's see here. And, and several of those points in the notes, if you go to the notes, I built those out with Bible references and so forth. So I guess we can call it quits at this point. Oh, no, there is a, there is a statement. Real, I want to get to this statement. Uh, and it's uh, the lesson quotes a quote from Martin Luther, the Reformer. And this is what the lesson states in the second to last paragraph. It says, Martin Luther referred to the cross as the altar upon which Christ, consumed by the fire of boundless love, which burned in his, in, uh, in his heart, presented the living and holy sacrifice of his body and blood to the Father with fervent intercession, loud cries, and hot, anxious tears. That's Martin Luther. They quoted him. And they referenced... Hebrews 5.7 to support that. So what do we always want to do when you see quotes like that in a Bible reference? The Bible reference. Check the Bible reference. So let's read, and, and notice this, this statement from Martin Luther, which you would exactly expect him coming out of Roman Catholicism, in which you always have intercessory priests pleading to the deity to assuage him in some way from his wrathful anger that he'd have to punish you for. You would expect very much Martin Luther to have a construct like this. So but let's look at Hebrews 5.7 and see what it actually says. This is from the NIV. And we're going to read 5.7 through 10. Let's get the context here. And this is what it says. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, became the source of sal eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, does this sound like what we read from Martin Luther? No, 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 no. No, Martin Luther's statement is about Jesus being in heaven pleading with tears and passion to the Father, to the Father to be merciful to us. Hebrews is describing Jesus in his earthly ministry as a human, as our substitutionary human sacrifice, 
being tempted with, in every way, just like we are, facing the anguish of that, pleading to his father for the strength to overcome, and he was heard. His father gave him the power, the victory, the presence, whatever you want to call it, strengthened him to succeed, and he overcame, destroying the carnal nature, developing a perfect human character. This was not about Jesus pleading to the Father to prevent the Father from hurting us. This is about Jesus' humanity pleading for the Father for the strength to succeed and destroy the infection of sin and restores righteousness into the species human and destroy Satan and the carnal nature and all the things that by his death he destroys. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and it goes, and it, so, so Jesus, in other words, the Bible isn't going to contradict, contradict himself. And remember, Jesus said in John 16, 26, I, I will not pray the Father for you. The Father himself loves you. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of him being in heaven and praying with anguish to the Father, this is pagan. Yeah. This is classic paganism. And this is what, sadly, much of the Christian church teaches, because God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself, and Jesus and the Father carried out their joint mission to uh, overcome Satan, destroy him, holds the power of death that is the devil, destroy death and bring life and immortality to light, and destroy the devil's work. All of these are what Jesus accomplished in our behalf. And on Thursday's lesson, we don't have time to get into. We're going to go ahead and end class. But if you look in the notes on Thursday's lesson, it's all about the question The lesson takes the position that Jesus died the second death. We take the position that Jesus destroyed death. Jesus was not destroyed by death. The second death is the death from which there's no resurrection. Jesus destroyed the cause of death and destroyed death and holds the keys to death in the grave. He was not destroyed by death. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your for what you've achieved for us, that we could never do it. We thank you for the substitutionary death of Christ, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And we ask for the Holy Spirit to take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, transform us and empower us to live victorious lives of faith and trust in you, that we can be witnesses for you at this this time in history, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.